If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Hold on. Joy comes in the morning. I appreciate Dan Isles so much. His faithfulness here is uh, the interim, even though he was never named the interim. That's what he did for several years here. And his faithfulness as he's ministered in Colorado and now around the world with I, uh, IMI. So continue to pray for him. Where are you headed tomorrow? Or Philippines. <clears throat> Philippines. Uh, this guy never stays home. But uh, July 17th, he will be home. He's going to come and speak for us on July 17th. So I hope you'll, uh, you'll be there for that. And, 1 Peter chapter 3, choosing to clarify. We're talking about the basics of relationship. The basics of relationship, choosing to clarify. We're talking about communication. Is communication tough? One of my favorite uh, cartoons uh, growing up was Charlie Brown. And I have an old cartoon from Charlie Brown and Peppermint Patty from years and years ago. And Peppermint Patty says to Charlie Brown, explain love to me, Chuck. Remember Peppermint Patty? She's the brash one. And Charlie Brown says, uh, you can't explain love. I can recommend a book or a painting or a song or a poem, but I can't explain love. And Peppermint Patty says, try, Chuck, try to explain love to me. Charlie Brown says, well, say I happen to see this cute little girl walk by and I, and she interrupts. She says, Chuck, why does she have to be cute? Can't someone fall in love with a girl who isn't cute and has freckles and a big nose? Explain that, Chuck. So Charlie Brown says, well, maybe you're right. Let's just say that I happen to see this girl walk by who has a great big nose and Peppermint Patty stops him again. I didn't say a great big nose, Chuck. And Charlie Brown's in the next, the last, the last frame is lying on his back. Obviously, she's decked him on her way out. And he says, you not only can't explain love, actually, I can't even talk about it. That's the way we feel when it comes to communication and the basics of relationship. We feel like we can't even talk about this sometimes. There's a, a pastor, J.A. Fritz, and he says, you can't know anyone unless you can communicate with them. You can't really know someone until you can communicate with them, and you can't love anyone you don't know. So our love is based, the love of any two people is based largely and depends largely on, largely on the amount and the depth of their communication. Did you get that? You can't know someone unless you can communicate. You can't love someone you don't know. So it all comes back to being able to communicate, the depth and the amount. We hear the words, but we need clarification. I, I also, I, I just couldn't resist. I, I ran across this Carol Mayhall. I mentioned her last week in her book. And she, she said there's six phases of communication. <clears throat> this is what she says. Here's the first phase, what you mean to say. That's, what, that's the first phase. Number two, what you actually say. Number three, what the other person hears. Number four, what the other person thinks he hears. Number five, what the other person says about what you said. And number six, what you think the other person said about what you said. You say, that's too complicated. Well, let, let me put it in, in to real life. What you mean to say, Carol says, what I meant to say was the moon puts me in a romantic mood. What I actually said, number two, was isn't that a brilliant moon? What the other person heard was, what her husband heard is, the moon is bright. What the other person thinks he hears is, the moon is bright enough for us to go out for a walk. What the other person, five, what the other person says about what you said is, yes, it's bright enough, I could go shoot some golf balls tonight. <laughs> Number six, what you think the other person said about what you said is, 
I'm not really that crazy about you, and I certainly don't feel romantic. Does that sum up our communication skills? We need to clarify. We hear the words, and sometimes it gets so complicated we stop trying, and Peter understood this. A year before he goes to the cross, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, I'm going to go to the cross. They're going to put me to death and I will die and I will be raised again. And Peter said, I don't understand. May it never be so. Lord, I will defend you to death. This cannot happen. And the Lord says, Peter, you're talking like Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And Peter understands how difficult it is sometimes, especially with big, huge thoughts, to be able to put those huge thoughts into little words. Proverbs 18.2 shows us how important it is. A fool finds no pleasure in understanding. If we, don't find, if we don't find understanding, if we don't take pleasure in that understanding, God says we're a fool, but delights in airing his own opinions. The Lord longs for us to understand what he is doing. He longs for us. He wants to clarify his message. And if anyone can communicate, God can, and yet we still don't understand sometimes. He wants us to clarify our purpose. He wants us to clarify our message when we give the message. And he wants our, our relationships to be able to communicate, wants us to be able to communicate in our relationships. So that's what we're looking at today. We're going to start with we need to clarify the real question. Sometimes the reason we don't know the answer is we don't know where the question is. And we're answering the question that's not been put out there. And Peter understood that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, he starts out by quoting a psalm. And look at what it says in, in verse 10, 1 Peter 3, 10. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now notice there he talks about the lips from evil, the lips from deceitful speech. He's, he's getting into communication. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. So the Lord is listening. That's part of communication. Not only the speaking but the listening. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Look at verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. We need to clarify the real question, and that's what Peter's trying to do for us in this chapter. He's trying to help us to answer two questions. Here's the first question. What am I living for? What am I living for? Peter knows that when he's writing this, these people are living under Nero. These people are living under a time when literally to be called a Christian means that you could be killed. We have missionaries today around the world in in countries that they have to be incognito. They have to be under the radar because if they go out and name the name of Christ, if they go out and tell people that they're Christians, they will be killed. If they tell people that they're missionaries, they will be killed. We have missionaries today in in that situation. And we don't understand that. But Peter understood it and he says, I need to ask you, what are you living for? And then he goes on to tell us that, that if, if we're doing right, if we're doing good, who's going to harm us? Well, my answer to that is everybody's going to harm us if we're doing good. It seems like in our world. But Peter goes on even a little further in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Peter says you should be living for the Lord. You should be living for who is right, what is right, doing what the Lord would have us to do. You should be living out your faith is what he's saying. You should be the one that God is using in a mighty way in your neighborhood. What are you living for? 
But he also throws in there the little, the little kink in there that life is not fair. How many of you think that life is fair? That's what I thought. Life is not fair. The life that we know is not fair because sin entered into the world and death by sin. Ever since God created Adam and Eve and they fell, life is not fair because it's been marred by what we do. And we're all born with a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, and in addition to that sin nature, we fail. And we do the wrong thing on a regular basis. Chuck Swindoll says, this is Chuck Swindoll, not Charlie Brown. A different Chuck, okay? Chuck Swindoll says, perhaps that's why, life is not fair, perhaps that's why we love fairy tales. In a fairy tale, good people always receive their rewards and live happily ever after. The bad people are soundly punished. Life works out just as it's done. Fairness reigns supreme. And then he goes, good news, bad news. Fairy tales are fun, but life doesn't work that way. And because we realize that life is not fair, even though we know what we should be living for, we kind of have this motto, life is not fair, I want my share. Look out for number one. Life is not fair, so I'm going to grab for all the gusto I can get. I'm going to live this way. Folks, if we don't learn anything else from what's happening in our nation right now, we should learn from this economic slump that if you're living for money, it's a foolish thing. It's like running on a treadmill. Anybody here ever run on a treadmill? You've been there, okay? You understand that. How far did you go? I have people come to me and say, I went four miles on my treadmill. And I say, no, you didn't. They say, yeah, it said four miles. I said, you didn't run anywhere. You You didn't go a single mile. You may have run in place, but you didn't get anywhere. You see, you went four miles, but you're still in the same place. And that's what life is when we try to live it for ourselves. That's what life is when we're trying to do it in our own strength. We're running on a treadmill to nowhere, and we're wondering why we're not getting there. Luke 12, 19 and 20. Jesus is speaking to them, and he says, And I'll say to myself, this is the rich fool We go back to the whole foolish thing again. The rich fool says, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Your IRA is full. Your retirement account is secure. Everything's there in Social Security. You know what's going to happen. Your house is paid off and everything's good. Have we heard this before? But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What are we living for? What am I living for? The ultimate deceitful speech that that Peter was talking about. Remember, he says it in verse 10. And keep his lips from deceitful speech. The, The ultimate in that is lying to yourself. It's bad enough to deceive someone else, but have you deceived yourself? God's timeline is infinite and we live in a finite world why doesn't god do something about evil why doesn't god do something about pain why doesn't do god do something about cancer and disease and death he is he sent his son jesus christ and because of the resurrection there is life because of the resurrection there is hope because of the resurrection there is a whole new world out there but we have to live for him god will make it all right eventually Did you notice it says, even when we suffer uh, for for doing what's right, God will use that to achieve his purpose in us. 
But God wants us to know even more. Randy Alcorn is an interesting guy. We, we did a study that Randy Alcorn had, had helped us with on eternity, and he wrote an article about the treasure principle when he talks about deceiving ourselves with money. And this is what Randy Alcorn says. The parable of a hidden treasure is one of the many references Jesus made to money and possessions. Here's a question for you. How much did Jesus talk about money? Did Jesus talk about heaven? How many think, people think that Jesus ever mentioned heaven? Raise your hand. Absolutely, he did. Raise your hand. Come on. Jesus talked about heaven. There you go. How many think that Jesus talked about hell? Raise your hand. He talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. How many people think that Jesus talked about money? Raise your hand. He talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. 15% of all Jesus' messages were on money. I'm going to start doing that. One out of eight messages that I preach. No, I won't do that. Why did Jesus put such an emphasis on money and possessions? Because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. We try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inseparable. In Matthew 6, Jesus fully unveils the foundation for what uh, he has called the, the treasure principle. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Why would Jesus say that, to store up your treasures in heaven? Because earthly treasures are bad? No. Are there some good earthly treasures? Absolutely. Strawberry shortcake is good. It's very good. God saw strawberries and he said, these are good. And then he put ice cream and whipped cream with them and he said, this is very good. No, earthly treasures are good. He says that earthly treasures won't last. And that's, that's the reason. He says earthly treasures won't last. But when Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost. It's because wealth will always be lost. Did you get that? It's not that it might be lost. It will always be lost. Either earthly treasures leave us while we live or we leave it when we die, but there are no exceptions. The treasure principle says this. If you store up for yourself, if you live for yourself right now, you will lose that treasure. But if you store up in heaven, if you send it on ahead, then you have stored it up in heaven. What am I living for? Number two, what are the ramifications? If we can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead, what are the ramifications of that? If you're regularly discouraged, if, if you get down, if you lose hope on a regular basis, you may be, we may be, I may be missing God's purpose for our lives. Peter quotes uh, Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. What is he telling us? God is watching. God is listening. God has a plan. God has a purpose. All of these things, he keeps honing in and focusing in on that. And he says, don't you understand that? If you live for the Lord, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, if you live out your faith, God is listening to you. And it makes a difference. It really doesn't sink in. Uh, Kathy and I, we love music and, and all kinds of music. And some of you are going to be shocked. We've been watching a show called The Voice. I don't know if you've seen it on NBC. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily all my style of music. I'd never heard of CeeLo. It shows how uncool I really am. But CeeLo is on there, and he's this producer. He's a hip-hop artist, I guess. And um, he's a short, funny dude that, that actually can sing pretty well. It's kind of amazing. But at one point, CeeLo says to one of the contestants on it, I've got the connections you need to make it in the music business. If you want to get ahead, you need to be on my team. You know what the Lord says? 
if you want to really make something of your life, you need to be on my team. And he's not talking about making you rich, and he's not talking about making you famous, and he's not talking about giving you the right song for the right, the right audition. He's talking about being there when you really need him. When everything falls apart. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. When, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 is interesting because it's right after Romans 8.28. says, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you understand that? It's not when the good things are happening. It's when the bad things come. It's not when everything goes right. It's when everything begins to break up that God says, I am for you. The huge ramifications when we begin to live for him and we answer the right question, what is life all about? It's to live for Christ, that we have God on our side. Even when we suffer for, what, for doing what is right, God says he blesses us. God uses that to achieve his purpose in us. We need to clarify the real question. The second part of this is we need to clarify my answer. I, I, how can I clarify my answer? 1 Peter chapter 3, go back to verses 14 through 22. One of the toughest sections in all of the Bible, by the way. I have, a, I have a pretty decent library. I have probably, I think, seven or eight commentaries on, on 1 Peter. And all seven or eight commentaries, they had one thing in common about the last few verses when we get there, verses 17 and following. None of them agreed. That's always nice when you read seven guys, seven, seven uh, guys who are really brilliant, and they come to no conclusion. I always think that that's a helpful thing. Look at verse 14 again. We're going to start where we left off. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil or wrong. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, this is where it gets tough. Look at what it says. He was put to death, Jesus Christ was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Boy, you're talking about clarifying. You're talking about good communication. What, is in, what in the world is he talking about? It says that Jesus Christ was, was crucified in the body, and he was raised again, a bodily resurrection, but also this spiritual resurrection. And it says he went to the spirits who were in prison. Who in the world is that? Well, there are churches today that will teach you that Jesus went to hell, and he preached to the people who were already in hell or in Hades, or, or in, in the place of torment, and he went there and he gave him a second chance. Is there any problem with that? Yeah, there's a huge problem with that because nowhere else in the Bible does, does it say that after we die. And in fact, the Bible says just the opposite. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Not after that, you get another message. The key here is there's a word that's carisio that's, uh, in Greek, and there's another word for preaching called evangelizo. 
Evangelists, so Paul, uh, Peter and Paul always use when they're talking about the gospel. When they're talking about proclaiming the gospel, it's always evangelizo. It's where we get the word evangelism. It's giving good news. Carizo, on the other hand, the Greek word carizo is totally different because it's going and it's proclaiming a judgment. It's going and giving the verdict. It's, carizo is what happens when a judge stands and he says, here's the verdict for what you've done. And I believe that what happened is after Jesus died and he was buried and he was raised again bodily and he also had that spiritual resurrection, he had the body and the spirit and he came back to life, he went to the place of torment and it's referring back, and you'll see this, to the time of Noah when there appears to be maybe some heavenly beings or something that we don't know for sure and they were bound up because of sin that they did and he went to them as a precursor of what's going to happen in the judgment, and he said, I have paid the price, you're condemned. I believe that's the message that he proclaimed, he carizoed, he gave them the judgment for what they had done wrong. Go back now. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, it's in the middle of verse 20, look at what it says, and it only a few people, eight and all, that's Noah and his family, were saved through water. And it gets weird again. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to you. There are churches that have read that and they say, oh, baptism saves you. They call it baptismal regeneration. Is there any problem with that? Yeah, there's 150 times in the Bible where it says that we're saved by grace through faith and that's all. It says that we're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross did not get baptized, and the Lord says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. There's a huge problem with that. But let's think through that for a minute. Noah and his family get into the ark, and this passage says that the water saved them. Did the water save them? No. The water flooded the earth over, to the, top, over the, top, the top of the highest mountains. So what saved them? The ark saved them. Who gave them the ark? Who gave them the plans, the design? Who gave Noah the strength? 120 years building an ark. Is that crazy? He spent all of this lifetime building this ark, put his family in it. Who saved them? It was the ark that God gave them. Does water save us? No. It's an illustration of the cleansing that God does in our life. But we're saved by the resurrection that Jesus Christ performed in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It's our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us, just like the ark saved Noah. That's the analogy, but it doesn't come, clear, uh, doesn't come clearly uh, through in English. So how can I clarify my answers? Here's, here's four things. And this is true in your relationship with one another, is, but especially true in our relationship with God. Number one, deconstruct your fears. Deconstruct your fears. What does that mean? That means take them apart. It means tear them down. We have these fears that we put up around us, and because of these fears, we struggle in relationships. We're afraid of what somebody will say. We're afraid of what somebody's going to do. We're afraid of what's going on. We're afraid to have an honest relationship with God. I've prayed with people, and I've, and I've heard them, and they say, well, I can't really pray that because I don't want God to know. Excuse me? Hello? He's pretty well aware of what's happening. That's not what's going on. 
even if you should, is the word in, in the, is the phrase in chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should. By the way, that's an extremely rare usage of if. Usually when we say if, we mean it may or may not happen. There's another place, like in Philippians chapter 2, it says, if you have any comfort of joy, if you have any, any commonality in the Holy Spirit, then fulfill my joy. And the if there is assuming that it is true, it, that it has happened. There's a third way that, that if is used in the New Testament, especially in the Greek, and that's in Hebrews. And it's if you could lose your salvation just for the sake of argument, not that you can, but if you could, for the sake of argument, I, we don't even, we're not even going to ask if that's true or not, but if you could, you could never be resaved, is what Hebrews chapter 6 says. That's the third class conditional. So you have first, second, and third class, and this is the fourth class conditional, and it's a very rare usage, and this is what he's saying. If it's unlikely, but there is a slight possibility, if you should, you say, well, wait a second. What do you mean? I suffer all the time when I do good. Well, but more times when you do good, you're rewarded for it. You're blessed because of it. Let me give you an example. Generally, when we do the right thing, we have benefits from it. If you exercise, if you diet, if you get enough sleep, are you generally healthier than if you don't diet and you don't exercise and you don't get enough sleep? Yeah, generally you are, absolutely. I'll never forget, when I was growing up, I was about 16 years old, and there was a, there was a young man in our church, and he was out in a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning, and there was, a, there was a, a fight that broke out. A man was stabbed, another man was shot. And this young man who was in our church was in the bar that night, and he was the one that was shot. And my dad set all five of the boys down. I, my sister didn't get in on that. I guess he thought that she wasn't ever going to be in a bar. But he got the five boys together, and he set us down, and he said, you want to know how you never get shot in a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning? And I said, no, Dad, tell me how. He says, don't go to bars. Okay, got it. He said, this is why we have curfews. This is why you have to be home. This is why you do that. Even my brothers that were older, even to the point of getting ready to get married, dad tried to use that as an object lesson to help us understand if you do good, generally you're blessed by it. But there are exceptions. And that's where verse 14 where it says, do not fear what they fear. The phobia, that's the strongest word for fear. It's a constant inner turmoil. Even when we suffer, we're blessed. Those fears that are there, we have to deconstruct those fears that come because of the exceptions. Malcolm Muggeridge is a, was a brilliant British man, a Bible scholar, and he says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular, with particular satisfaction. Let me go back again. He looks back on experiences that should have been desolating but he had satisfaction. Why? I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that's truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. Wow. Everything that Malcolm Muggeridge has ever learned came through affliction and not through happiness. What is he saying? Is he crazy? No, Jesus said the same thing. Look at Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We're going to be blessed when that comes up. Peter knew exactly what he was saying here. He says you have to deconstruct your fear. Do not fear what other people fear. 
Peter was so afraid of a servant girl that he denied Jesus. Peter was so afraid that people would point at him and maybe put him on a cross that he denied his Lord. Listen, we may not like this. I've been reading through Job again. I, I'm, I'm reading through the Bible. I just, I, I've done it the last few years, and I just have enjoyed it so much I'm reading through it. And you get to Job, and you think, wow, this is really tough. Job did nothing wrong, and he lost his family and his fortune and so much, and he was in such agony, physical torment from the, the sores on his body. Job, like Job, we will be singled out. Only Christians are equipped to handle those kind of things. That's what makes us unique. Deconstruct your fears. It's not if you suffer, but when you suffer. Number two, reset your controller. Reset your controller. Not only do you have to take away those fears that are keeping you from doing what the Lord would have you to do and clarifying your message and saying what you need to say, but you have to reset your controller. It says set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart, sanctify. It's the same word that we get, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. Agios, it's the same Greek word. It, it's sanctified. It means to set apart. It means to reset him as the one in control. Reset him as the Lord, the boss of your life. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Remember the, the passage in Philippians where it says, one, knee, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is already Lord. Why do we have to set him apart as Lord? Because we don't allow him to be Lord of our life. When you're suffering or you're mistreated, you're facing an impossible situation, let me give you a prayer. Let's pray something like this. Father, you're here. You're much too kind to be cruel, much too good to be unjust. You love me too much not to be paying attention to what's happening. So, Father, today, take charge. Give me calm and peace. Take control of my emotions, of this situation, of my life, of my purpose. Your plan, not my plan. You see, it's easy to let other people control us. We're controlled by what they think. We're controlled by what they say, by what they do. And we have to reset our control. Or maybe we're uh, allowing ourselves to control. Uh, Galatians 1.10 says it this way. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Are they in control? Or am I still try, am I, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Christ would not be my master. I would not allow him to have control of my life. We have a Wii game. We have a Wii video game in our house. I know, two adults and you have a Wii game. It's for the grandkids. Okay, it's for me. I, you know, we have a Wii game. What can I say? We love playing Wii. Well, we, we, we play it occasionally. But we have this Wii thing. And every now and then when you're using the controller, you'll punch on a game. And you know what it says? Reset your controller. You have to take it off your wrist, the little strap. You have to put it on the coffee table or whatever. And it says, leave it there. And don't touch it until we tell you it's okay. Who's in control of that game? That little funny man that is bald and, oh, that's just my guy. Okay, never mind. <laughs> the Lord says, I want you to reset your control. I want you to take your hands off of controls of your life and turn it over to me. Number three, be ready to tell the truth. Did you notice he says, be prepared to give an answer? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. 
Sometimes I'm th- I've seen some people so eager to argue about the Bible that they're there, and the first time they see somebody, they run up, and the, it's like the guys who, you know, who have the big signs, and they're saying, you know, you're going to hell, and come and ask me if you want to know more. Wow, that's a really great way to win somebody to Christ, isn't it? You're so eager to do that, but did you notice it's not what it says? It says, when they ask you. We don't have to ram it down their throat. Why would people ask us what the Lord is doing? I think it's when they see how we handle suffering. I think it's when they see how we handle when things don't go well. And he says to give an answer, an apologia. It's an apologetic. It's a logical reasoning. What's the reason for our hope? How can you still have hope? Do you see what's happening in your life? Everything's falling down around you. How can you have hope? And you tell them, my hope is in the Lord. My hope is in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his power, his plan, his love for us. Peter knew this. In Acts chapter 4, after he had denied Jesus in Acts chapter 4, when he's, when he's brought before the Sanhedrin, these are the same guys that ran Jesus to the cross. These are the same guys that, that orchestrated in their mind, instrumental. they were instrumental in getting Jesus to the cross. And they say, you can't speak anymore about Jesus. And what does Peter say? We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We have to tell people. When they ask us, we're going to give the reason, the apologia, the apologetic. We're to give the answer with gentleness and respect. Respect literally is the awe of God. In awe of God, you stand back and you tell people, this is what God is doing in my life, and you do it with gentleness. Uh, You know, there are a couple of churches today that are doing things that I wish they wouldn't name the name of Christ when they do it. And it's one of these churches that goes when when we have a military person that's killed in action and they come back and the church comes out with pickets and they picket the funeral. I disagree with their theology, number one, but number two... It makes me sick to my stomach to think of this family who's lost this young man or this young woman who's given their life for our country for the freedom to, be, to have the freedom of speech, to be able to worship the Lord freely, and you have some morons out there picketing them. It makes me sick. Where's the gentleness? Even if they were right, that's not the time or the place. That's not what Christ would have us to do. And Peter says, be ready to tell the truth. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. Here's the last one. Keep a clear conscience. Ask God to check our hearts. Dig deep inside to check our our integrity. Keeping a clear conscience. Do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience. What does that mean? That means that your life is, you're on short accounts with God when you blow it, when you when your message is not right, when your life is not right, when you have sinned. 1 John 1, 9 says, if, you, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most everything we've done wrong. Is that what it says? No, from all unrighteousness. Peter is coming back and he's remembering once again how the Lord forgave him by the Sea of Galilee. And he's saying, listen, it's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I never blew it. But when I blew it, the Lord allowed me to come in and said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know I love you. I think what the Lord was saying is, Peter, I forgive you. Peter, you're still valuable. Peter, I still have a job for you. Keep a clear conscience. Come to the Lord those times that you blow it. Proverbs 20, 27 says, The lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. 
There are things in your heart that sometimes you need to just pray, Lord, look inside me. See those things. See those, those things that have destroyed our relationship. And to be honest enough and clear enough to come to the Lord. It's a powerful message that Peter gives. And when you put it into practice, it's, it's an incredible message. Don Moen did that. Don Moen is the president of Integrity Music. I love Don. He's, he's a man that loves the Lord. Don Moen was uh, in Philadelphia getting ready to get on a plane a few years ago, and he got a call from his brother who lives in Texas, and he said, I don't know how to tell you this. We were out in the van, and the whole family was there, and a drunk driver hit us. Blew us completely off the road. The van turned over. Three of the kids were, had minor scrapes and bruises and some broken bones, but they were okay. But our oldest son was killed. I found him. He'd been ejected from the van, and he had a seatbelt on. We don't know how that happened, but he was ejected. In spite of having a seatbelt on, he was ejected from the van, and Donnie broke his neck. He didn't have a pulse. His, Don's brother is a doctor. He said, I would have given him CPR, but he was gone. There was, there was no hope. For 45 minutes, he had to sit by his dead son waiting on an ambulance to come and, and take the others to the hospital. And Don Moen was brokenhearted for his brother and his, the loss of his nephew. I believe he was 16, 17 years old. And Don Moen got on a plane to come there, and when he got there, his brother said, Don, I, you know, you're a musician. I need somebody to sing. I want you to sing for the funeral. And Don Moen sang for the funeral. He sang a song that his brother had picked out, something that, that had been meaningful to his son. Afterwards, Don Moen came to the family, and he said, when I was on the plane, I, I realized that there was something that I needed to do, and I just began to jot down some words. And he closed the doors, family only, and he sang, God will make a way. When there seems to be no way, he works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, he will make a way. He will make a way. He did a little verse, by a roadway in the wilderness he'll lead me, and rivers in the desert will I see. Heaven and earth will fade, but his word will still remain. He will do something new today. He sang it for the family, and they were moved beyond comprehension. He didn't sing it for the funeral. I didn't know that until I just was reading the story of it this week. And somebody asked Don, why don't you publish that? That would be very meaningful. He says, I will not make any money off of my nephew, uh, uh, off of my brother's loss. I would never do that. That's, that song was for the family only. And the family asked him to record a copy of it because they wanted a copy of the song for later that they could use. And so he went to the studio. He's the president of Integrity Music. It's not a big deal. He went to the studio and he made a copy of it. And the engineer that day, as he sat at the keyboard and, and played it and sang the song and, and in, did the engineer... He looked in. The engineer was just bawling. He said, Don, I need this song. He says, what do you mean? He says, I just found out my sister has cancer, and she's dying, and I need this song. She needs this song. Don said, okay, you can make one copy, and you send it to your sister. And when she got the CD, she put it on the Internet. 
In the first 30 days it was on the internet, it had 150,000 hits. 150,000 hits. Don was devastated, called his brother, and he says, Oh, brother, you didn't write that song for me. You wrote it for everyone who's ever lost a child, a spouse, a parent, a loved one. You wrote it for all the people who needed to hear the truth in that song. So Don Moen went ahead and released the song officially. Of all the songs that Don Moen has written, that song has far surpassed, four times more than anything else he's ever written. Because he was ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that lay within him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Do you have that kind of faith in Jesus Christ? That God has a way, even when things are tough, if you should suffer, God will bless. If you don't have that kind of faith, you can have it today. You can come. We will be glad to pray with you and lead you so that you can trust him as your Savior. If you do have that faith, are you living out the truth? Have you been clear in your message to other people how you handle those things that seem impossible in your life? Father, what an incredible message. And some weeks ago, some months ago, when I was putting messages together, I never dreamed that this week would be what this week was. But you had this message from me. And you had this message from my family. And as a church family, we come to you needing to be clear. We need to break down the walls, to deconstruct the fears, to be honest in love, to speak the truth in love. We need, Father, to be able to, to be clear of our conscience that we've done those things that you've asked us to do, to be on short accounts with you. Give us better relationships one with another, but most of all, Father, may we have the relationship with you that would honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.